Hello, you're listening to the My Care Champion Cast. I'm your host, Lucy Shimatero of the Michigan Health and Hospital Association. Each month, we invite industry experts and thought leaders to discuss relevant healthcare issues. Join us as we explore key topics that affect Michigan hospitals, health systems, and the health of our communities. Hello, and welcome to episode 30 of the My Care Champion Cast. I'm Lucy Shibatero, Assistant Director of Communications at the Michigan Health and Hospital Association. Today, we'll be discussing current health policy priorities that are top of mind both at the MHA and within the Michigan legislature. I have two expert guests in studio who are here to talk through these issues and further discuss the importance of collaborating with state lawmakers to advance the health of Michigan patients and communities. The first guest I'll introduce is Laura Oppel, who is our Executive Vice President of Government Relations and Public Policy here at the MHA. In her time at the association, Laura has focused on strategic priorities related to state and federal lobbying and healthcare policy analysis. She has a master's degree in healthcare transformation, a bachelor's degree in economics, and was recognized in 2020 as one of Crane's notable women in health, which honors those making a difference for patients, businesses, and the healthcare field as a whole. Laura, welcome to the show, and thanks for being here. Thanks, Lucy. Our second guest is State Representative Julie Rogers, now in her second term serving Michigan's 41st House District, which includes portions of Kalamazoo, Portage, and Comstock Townships. She's a practicing physical therapist and a champion of public health, previously serving on the National Association of Counties Health Steering Committee for seven years, and now as chair of House Committee on Health Policy. She also serves as a member of many committees within the House and co-chairs the Biosciences Legislative Caucus. We're very grateful for her partnership over the years, and even more grateful she took time out of her busy schedule to be with us here today. Representative Rogers, welcome to the studio. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Can you start by telling our audiences, those who may not be familiar with you, a little bit more about your role within the Michigan legislature and, and what led you to this work? Sure. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate the opportunity. I'm one of the few uh, legislators that has a healthcare background, and I think it really shapes and informs policy, which we'll get into um, shortly. But really, um, people often ask me how I got into government um, from being a physical therapist. And Mm -hmm. uh, it really starts at the beginning of my career. I had my freshly minted master's in physical therapy degree in the late 90s. Um, and then promptly could not find a job in the Midwest. I'm born and raised in uh, Kalamazoo, Michigan, Mm. and was hoping to go back after I was in Marquette University for my degree in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. But the reason why there were very few to no jobs in physical therapy as well as other therapies was because of something that happened uh, at the federal level with a policy change for physical therapy, occupational therapy, and speech therapy, um, putting a cap on Medicare visits. Mm -hmm. So they capped those at 18 visits per year, no matter how many different things or diagnoses were wrong with you. And um, so I moved to Dallas, Texas for my first job. Mm -hmm. And my hospital administrator heard my story and said, hey, it sounds like you might have some special insights Uh, would you join our healthcare advocacy team? So I was with physicians, nurses, social workers, therapists, and we would travel to Austin, Texas, their capital, about once a month, um, talking to legislators about public policy, and I really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. So that was really my first foray into government, uh, and I've been a part of it ever since. Um, I did get homesick for Michigan after I burned my hand on the car door one too many times in the August (laughs) heat. And so I moved back um, in 2003 and then shortly after got appointed as the statewide legislative liaison from our 
American Physical Therapy um, Association in Michigan to Congress. And so I would go to Congress and talk to them about health policy. I did that for three years and mm-hmm. just kind of got tired of it and decided I could run for office myself. Yeah, that's amazing. Did you think going into physical ther- therapy that you'd end up in government? Never. Initially, no. That's amazing, though. And Laura, you've been a guest on the podcast. Last time you were here, we were talking elections. But yeah. um, if you could refresh our listeners on your background and what led you to your role at the MHA and, and what that role entails. Sure. So here at the MHA, I'm responsible for the finance policy communications and advocacy divisions. Um, You know, really, I landed at the MHA many years ago, um, kind of unexpectedly. Uh, I applied for a job. I replied in response to an ad in the paper. (laughs) What Uh, are those? Back when we had papers (laughs) and ads in them. I Um, remember those. (laughs) And, um, you know, kind of uh, without planning it, this really became my forever place to work. So, Mm. um, I'm excited to be here today and to be able to have the expertise of it's it's really nice to have a lawmaker who has this healthcare background, especially right. in charge of health policy. Yeah, I think something you both have in common is just the passion you have for your jobs. Um, and I'd love to know, Representative Rogers, being a physical therapist, how does that inform your work as a lawmaker? Sure. Well, I still practice a few days a month at my local hospital as a physical therapist, um, some in the acute care side in the actual hospital facility, and then some in outpatient because the skill sets are very different. But I really appreciate that time, even if it is only a couple days a month, because my patients and their stories really inspire me every day. Mm -hmm. Um, Their issues inform and shape the policies that I craft And um, interestingly, uh, we'll talk later about Medicaid work requirements, I think, but Mm -hmm. um, I had a recent um, actual real-life patient um, that could have been affected by that policy. Um, And so I also have been um, very much aware of workforce issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of of course, a lot of our industries have workforce issues, but our hospitals um, do as well. And so... Uh, being able to look at the staffing changes and shortages and and how that's even affected my own practice um, has been impactful. Yeah. So Representative Rogers, you know, that reminds me of sort of I, I came from the state legislature before I was at MHA. And, you know, you're unique in the legislature because of your health care background, also working on health care policy, regulating your committee, I don't I'm not familiar with the background of everyone on your committee, but in the legislature generally, people came from being teachers, practicing family law, insurance agencies, even you know some people are still farmers. Uh, how do you work with your committee on helping people understand the you know some pretty intense policies? that what they're voting on makes a difference in how people run hospitals, Mm -hmm. uh, how your own practice might change. You know, so the good news is you have this expertise that you can help them with, but uh, it's a pretty sharp learning curve, I imagine. Absolutely. I will start by saying I'm really fortunate to have a couple of people with some health backgrounds on our health policy committee this term. Mm -hmm. So we do have on the Democratic side someone who holds a master's in public health. 
Um, so she is able to, Rep. Rangans is able to kind of weigh in with a little bit different lens with the public health aspect. Mm -hmm. And then we do have on the Republican side, um, Representative Thompson, who I believe is an LPN in long-term care. And so that is nice because they have been able to um, share the load a little bit with some of their expertise. But I will say, um, not only with health policy, but especially with the larger caucuses and the entire body of the legislature, um, oftentimes things you know, may sail through health policy and we have a lot of agreement and then it's a battle um, with members later. And so being able to share some of those firsthand experiences as examples, mm -hmm. um, and, and I think I have a little bit of a different level of authenticity as a practicing healthcare provider. So when I can share a real life story, um, I think that sometimes makes a difference for people. Absolutely. Well, some of our listeners might not even be familiar with the House Committee on Health Policy, what exactly is the purpose of that committee and what does your role as chair look like? Sure. So we have 19 members. It is the largest policy committee, uh, and I'm thrilled to, to lead it. Um, we do have, of course, bipartisan makeup, um, but we also have a new um, behavioral health subcommittee. Mm. And so that has been an interesting new process to me. We did not have subcommittees last term. But Speaker Tate really um, wanted to have a lens and focus on behavioral health. So that is one of our subcommittees. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate that he, that the appointment for the chair is Representative Felicia Brabeck, who is a mental health therapist herself. And so even last term, um, we tag teamed quite often. I was leading physical health side of things. She was leading mental health side of things. And we collab collaborated on many things very well. Right. Um, and how that is working is that when there is an issue that I feel could be better served with some additional time and testimony in that space, um, she and I usually have a conversation and um, have so far been in agreement. And then I refer a bill to her committee. Mm -hmm. They have – their subcommittee, I should say. They um, have – you know, testimony and hearings, and then they make a recommendation back to the full health policy board, and then right. we decide to vote it up or down to the full body of the House. Right. And when it comes to those bipartisan issues, how do you collaborate on both sides of the aisle? How does that, what does that look like? <laughs> I'd say it really depends on the issue. Um, there are quite a few issues that we are in agreement. Um, I was very intentional with the first bill I took up, which mm -hmm. was a rare disease bill, make, establishing a rare disease council in Michigan um, by Representative uh, Morgan, and that's HB 4167. But um, that's just a little example of we, I thought it would probably have a lot of agreement, but um, the minority vice chair, Vanderwall, had a, a small concern that he wanted addressed. And so we made extra time the day before the meeting to sit down, hear his concern, get it addressed with the bill sponsor. Mm -hmm. And then we had a unanimous vote out of committee. Right. So whereas if I hadn't taken that extra time, I think the vote could have turned out differently and um, that's just kind of my style to see, listen, be a listener and a convener and to hear all sides. And even though I might, may not always agree with all sides, I'm my door is always open and I try to listen to all sides and all points of view. Right. That's amazing. Well, one of the issues that we've mutually advocated for is to remove Michigan's Medicaid work requirements within the Healthy Michigan Plan. Representative Rogers, can you give our listeners some background on those bills and what motivated you to introduce them? Sure. So it really um, was a failed policy. Um, it was put in place um, during a previous uh, governor's administration. 
and um, my, I actually introduced a, a bill a bill to address and to completely repeal it. So my bill is HB four two two four to repeal the Medicaid work requirements. And the interesting thing is that um, they never really were fully implemented in any state except for Arkansas. Mm. Um, there were several court cases that had injunctions. Um, back in 2020, there was a federal court decision um, that found that Michigan's work requirements could not be enforced. And then April of 2021, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services withdrew the waiver that Michigan received for those. And interestingly, when I was doing my research before testifying before the health committee to um, about this bill, the one state that did implement them, Arkansas, saw absolutely no savings. Mm. Um, in fact, they saw the opposite. People were losing insurance because they couldn't complete those work requirements. The The legislation um, as passed in Michigan originally was 20 hours a week of work. And again, this is a population that is often has many different challenges, sometimes transportation, sometimes mm. childcare. And so, so sometimes it was just a paperwork barrier. Um, they may be working their 20 hours, but they didn't submit the paperwork on time. Um, there was also there's also this whole piece around um, different um, diagnoses. And again, back to the mental health topic, mm-hmm. um, you know, sometimes people may have some kind of physical disability where um, their healthcare team, you know, would would um, write them off of work or they'd have a clear just clear-cut disability because it was a that's physically seen disability and mm-hmm. sometimes in the addiction space or mental health spaces it's it's not as obvious to someone right. um, I also will go back to my patient my real life patient story from a couple of months ago uh, where this woman had worked 25 years she shared with me her entire life and it was in a manufacturing plant um, and she had a lot of significant heavy loads to her body, including her spine. And she just ended up with severe stenosis and um, degeneration of her spine. Her first fusion, her first lumbar fusion failed and she had to have a subsequent follow-up and um, all the pain in between really made her not able to work. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, people say, oh, you could do a desk job or you could do this or that. And when you aren't living in that person's shoes, I, I kind of quote Pope Francis quite frequently. It's like I always say, who am I to judge, right. which is Pope Francis. And we don't know someone's full story. We don't know their entire medical record or their condition. And so for this woman, she wasn't able to concentrate enough. She'd be able to maybe maybe could work like 45 minutes, but then the debilitating pain mm-hmm. would affect her concentration or she'd have to go lay down for a little bit. Uh, so that was just a very impactful story. And I said to her, thank you for sharing your story because this is the legislation I'm working on right now. Right. Yeah. I think those examples are really important. The um, the hospital association on behalf of our members and our the member hospitals as well, you know, we're very grateful for the work, your work on the um, Medicaid work requirement because under the Affordable Care Act, we paid for expansion, the Healthy Michigan Plan, through reductions to hospital reimbursement. And it was small amounts, you know, a quarter percentage here, a half percentage the next year, 0.75 the first year maybe. But over time, in the first 10 years of the effectiveness of the Affordable Care Act, that total was in excess of $10 billion. 
that Michigan hospitals paid so that we could have the Healthy Michigan Plan. And, you know, we we do want everyone to um, have the full experience in their life. And right now, I fear there are many people that we wish could be at work mm-hmm. and maybe want to be at work with our staffing shortages. But um, whether or not you get access to health care shouldn't be the determining factor uh, about someone's work status. Right. And um, so we, again, we want to say thank you for the um, effort that you're making on that particular issue because uh, it, it's a, it was a proposition that we embraced, uh, the, the hospital community at large, uh, nationally, and MHA, or the Michigan hospitals as well, you know, healthcare for all, paid for by all, and, and that was our contribution. So it makes some sense, and we'll hopefully see your legislation move forward uh, at some point. Well, Laura, you touched on staffing shortages, so I'd love to switch gears if you can just touch on some of the top priorities that our advocacy team is focused on at the MHA right now. Uh, absolutely, and uh, hospital workforce vacancies is probably at this, not only number one, but maybe number one, two, and three. And we recently did a survey of our membership, and 95% of folks responded. So we're pretty, we feel good that these numbers are very solid. And we have about 208,000 people who work in our hospitals, and we need another 27,000 more. 8,500, nearly 8,500 of those are nurses, and we, you know, I was listening to a podcast earlier that um, was a little disappointing in terms of, you know, what the perspective might be from the hospital leadership related to nurses. Uh, nurses are led in hospitals by chief nursing officers. Julie, you're probably familiar with this. And nurses are hugely valuable. They're hugely valuable for the skills they bring. They're hugely valuable for the perspective they bring. Um Nurses are very, they're, they're so integral to patient care. Patient care doesn't happen without nurses. They are the lead in patient care. Yes, doctors do these incredible interventions, but after those interventions happen, it's nurses that are there making sure that that sticks. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's no joke when we say we are desperate for those 8,500 people at the bedside. I also want to mention, however, that we're short over 4,000 people in terms of technicians. And what you, people listening to podcasts might say, well, technicians, you know, technicians take care of my car. I'm talking about the people that help out in the pharmacy. Mm-hmm. Every hospital has a pharmacy. That's where the things that you take when you're laying in the bed, they bring you that little cup, say, please take this. Somebody in the pharmacy made sure that that's the right thing, mm-hmm. and it got to the right person. We also have people in the lab, lab technicians. They're making sure that your blood test gets re, re, um, turned quickly. We have people that are patient care techs. They extend for nurses. They help you use the restroom. They help make sure that you um, can get up and down as you know when you need to. Do you want to sit in the chair for a while? Your physical therapist was probably saying, I need you to get up. Right. And the patient care tech can, um, if the PT isn't right there, they can help you. We need people who contribute to operations. Mm-hmm. Again, 
okay, you know, engineers? Well, in some cases, yes, but we need another 4,000 people. Those are the people who make the food that you need in hospitals, both for patients and for staff. Mm-hmm. We need people who move patients around in the hospital, getting you up and down to x-ray or MRI or whatever. We need people to help keep our rooms clean. So we're these are all people that really directly interact with uh, patients, and I got several thousand more that were short as well, but those I think are the ones that, uh, when I say one, two, and three, nurses, techs, operations, we, we need all of them, mm-hmm. and it's um, we're working hard to uh, fill those vacancies, and one of the things that the legislature helped us with both last year and this year is funding. A total of $300 million came to hospitals to help with recruitment and retention, and Representative Rogers was there for both of those votes, so thank you. You're welcome. And it's interesting that you say all these things because I often say that hospitals are cities uh, within cities. Mm -hmm. And what you just described is really so integral. And when one little piece of that is missing, it is a house of cards that falls quickly. And I will just um, talk about our janitorial staff and of course, cleanliness is so important in infection control rates in hospitals. And so right. when you have fewer of of the the EVS staff or again, um, the the extenders, if you will, the the PCAs, the patient care associates or the techs, um, when when there aren't those extra set of hands, then the nurses uh, are short and then mistakes are made and accidents happen. And so every piece of that healthcare team is so important. I would totally agree. Right. And you're speaking firsthand. (laughs) Yes. Well, one of the pieces that we talked about previously that informs the way we deliver care, you deliver care, I should say, is how we advocate for preventative health. And I know that's something you're really passionate about, Representative Rogers. Can you touch on why that's so key to, um, you know, health policy and also just in general, people need to take care of themselves inside and outside of the hospital? Sure. So, you know, I think the thing that's so interesting about preventative health and um, preventive measures are they're so simple. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I introduced a resolution in the House of Representatives that passed unanimously um, designating May as Movement Month in Michigan. And so something very simple that I instituted, I, I forgot today in health policy, but I need to go back to it. Um, but just taking literally one minute to get up and move. And mm-hmm. so um, I, I instituted that our health policy committee is generally 90 minutes, which is a very long time to sit still. Um, and so halfway through, I institute I would go at ease with the gavel and um, have every member get up and move around and get the wiggles out. And mm-hmm. um, the interesting thing is I've had several stakeholders that have been around for years um, longer than I have been here say, oh, that was the best committee ever because your legislators actually listened to our right. testimony and they asked, <laughs> asked really good questions. They were and more so, engaged. <laughs> that's right. And I think that it has an effect on our brain power and our concentrations and as well as just our spinal mobility. And it doesn't have to, you know, of course we've got um you know, I'm a runner and a triathlete as well. And, you know, it's great to do serious exercise that gets our heart rates up um, for a lot of other reasons. But something as simple as going for a walk, mm-hmm. getting up and down, going up and down some stairs, um, even just I even say something I, I'm doing this myself as we talk right now, just the little spinal wiggle where you kind of yeah. arch back and forth a little bit that has such an impact on um, people's overall health. And then 
back to our little breakfast discussion earlier <laughs> mm-hmm. of, you know, just, um, you know, I like to quote Governor Whitmer, eat a damn vegetable. Yeah. I I think that one of the things that we learned during the pandemic, Lucy, is um, we don't have infinite capacity to admit patients. Mm-hmm. Um we might we might be able to make all the beds we could ever need. We could just start making beds the way we could used to make cars or ventilators. Uh, we talked ventilators. about ventilators, right? Uh, but we can't just generate the people to take care of folks. And when Representative Rogers talks about these small things that you can do to preserve your health, um, you know, they're so critical. I mean, I think that you know we have just we have way too many people in our state and our, you know, local communities, but also, you know, throughout the state, we have too many people who develop diabetes. Mm-hmm. And there are relatively simple things you can do to avoid that that really just involve movement. You know, after you eat your dinner, 10, 15-minute walk, it doesn't have to be training. It doesn't have to be running. It just can be moving. And that will get you enough metabolism to avoid what is a very, very serious disease. Mm-hmm. And um, we have, you know, we'll talk about people that have kidney disease, kidney transplants. All of those things are um, the downward slope from diabetes. And a 15-minute walk after your dinner is not, you won't lose weight. You're not going to necessarily develop a lot of uh extreme muscle, but you are going to make a difference in your metabolism, enough of a difference. And those are the things that we need to do so that we can, um, you know, have a, a working healthcare system. We saw what happened during the pandemic when we were overwhelmed with the number of sick people. Mm-hmm. And we're on a kind of a slow progression of that in some ways with some of these other chronic illnesses. It's just the pandemic happened in a few weeks this other progression is happening over time. Right. And and, we, and as you uh, mentioned that, I just took a sip of my water because yeah. that's another <laughs> one is, you know, one one of my team members uh, were a little sluggish one day and I just asked them, well, I don't mean to pry, but I haven't seen you drink any water today. And it turned out they had had like uh, half a cup in the morning and it was seven hours later and they hadn't had any water and they t- drank a 24-hour, 24 ounce bottle of water and felt so much better just from that hydration kick. Right. They're fortunate to have a boss that like advocates for that and, you know, being in an organization that cares about your health is a big deal. And I speak on that firsthand as well. So I'm kind of like the team mom. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. (laughs) Well, and as we're talking about this, I think it's really important to mention that we're fortunate to have hospitals and health systems throughout the state that invest in community programming and offer services that make it a lot easier for residents to prioritize their health, both physical and mental. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this. We have a lot of stories on our website, mha.org, if you head to our newsroom, um, that showcase a lot of the work that our hospitals are doing to help their communities with that preventative health piece. Um, Some are doing fitness programs. Some offer substance abuse coalition resources. Some are providing mental health education to students um, in need. So I just encourage anyone who hasn't to read some of those stories. Uh, They're in the newsroom featured as 2023 Ludwig nominee 
articles. So um, again, mha.org in our newsroom, or even check out what opportunities are offered by your local hospital or health system. Because if you're looking for community support in the health space, it's very likely that your healthcare providers have some resources available to you. I don't know if they still do it, but the Sure Hospital up in Pigeon, mm. they took the benefit of their, this is a pharmacy program people aren't familiar with, but this is called 340B, and it helps hospitals uh, afford prescription drugs for their um, for for people that have um, certain types of coverage or might ha- not have any coverage at all. Anyway, the savings that that generated, the a previous CEO used that funding to help with physical activity programming uh, all week long mm-hmm. in inside the hospital for uh, older people. Although I'm not sure they would have turned anybody away, because up there near the thumb especially in the winter, there's not great opportunities for physical movement. Right. Not a lot of sidewalks, uh, you know, can be quite bad weather. And that's how they invested that was and, and, and at no charge right. because they knew that people needed that kind of not only the physical activity, but the socialization. So, yeah, yeah. That, uh, I, I remember that. I, I haven't checked lately to see if they still open uh, offer that, but it was a terrific program. Talking about some of the public health policy issues that you've been a champion of, Representative Rogers, one of the things that comes to mind is auto no-fall reform. So I just wondered if you could touch on the latest with that and and what we could do currently to improve the changes that were made back in 2019. Sure. Well, I like to um, tease my my staff and my team that I like to take on the small issues like auto no-fall. Work requirements, auto no-fall. So I took this on as a freshman lawmaker last term as the lead um, person on the Democratic side. And um, I have seen it in, you know, the pro- the number of providers. We've had over 4,000 um, people leave because of going out of business because of these drastic cuts that were put into place in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most people are pretty well aware at this point that it was a 45% um, fee schedule cut. And so I think that's one of the big chunks that needs to be addressed is a fair fee schedule. Um, I've heard from providers, patients, and families that this really needs to be addressed. And uh, the hospitals are, of course, in this mix at ground zero because what I've found, I've had my own constituents reach out that they um, cannot find providers to care for them uh, for some of these uh, significant, serious, catastrophic brain injuries or spinal cord injuries, folks that are often um, you know, in wheelchairs and quite debilitated and do need 24-7 care or assistance. Mm-hmm. And so their um, home health agencies have often gone out of business and they're being dropped off at hospital emergency rooms, not because of them being in any kind of acute crisis, but because they don't have someone to do the basics for them. Right. And so it's really a crisis of care is what I call it. Um, our, Of course, our Um, hospitals who are often strapped. And of course, during COVID, we're really strapped for uh, lack of beds. Um, This really just is not the appropriate place for them to go, but they had nowhere else. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think the the fee schedule piece definitely needs to be addressed. The other piece is the, um, there was a 56-hour cap on family attendant care. uh, So that equals eight hours a day, seven days a week. But again, as the picture I'm trying to describe for people is 
If you're, say, um, a C3 quadriplegic in a wheelchair, that means you need physical help for transferring yourself from the wheelchair to the bed. You will end up with pressure ulcers or bed sores if you aren't turned every two hours because you don't have that physical capability of trunk control to roll over. Mm -hmm. And so just being um, served by people during the waking hours is not going to be sufficient. So that's another example of sometimes um, people in the legislature that don't have this working knowledge of the practicalities of what's going on say, oh, 24-7 seems like, you know, fraud and abuse. Well, no, for some people it's medically necessary. And so if your physician is saying you need 24-7 care because of a medical reason, um, I think it, I think it's very perplexing that the legislature can enact laws that um, don't allow that to happen. Which, again, goes to there are a lot of folks who their expertise is not in this area, and so um, – you know that it 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 makes it really important for anybody who's from the hospital community listening to this to be really engaged with their lawmakers to help them understand you know we can't blame them i don't i mean i don't i couldn't put me in front of a class of one of first graders and expect a great outcome um so you know everybody has their everybody has their uh issue areas uh, this is a place where, yes, we could have done a much better job. It could have been clear that the limit was on a family member doing 56 hours of care a week, but that a person's care should still be judged on their condition. And w- another person that I knew from that suffered an auto accident survived and has done immense work to maintain the maximum capacity she could have with her um after her injuries. Mm -hmm. And I asked her one time, you know, what is the difference? Uh, You know, why do you need the capability of using a manual wheelchair compared to an electronic wheelchair or an electric wheelchair? And she said, well, if I have the manual, the person helping me, we can get into it at just about any stall in any bathroom if there's a handicapped stall. We can do that. She said, if I have to use the big electric wheelchair, I pretty much take over the entire room. I need the whole bathroom. And that means someone has to stand at the door, ask people not to come in while I'm using it. The the amount of independence that I have by using my manual wheelchair is immense. Mm-hmm. And so for her, and Representative Rogers, I think you're probably going to know exactly what you know, your background is a PT. It's not the phys- physical therapy is not a one and done. She does uh, regular, weekly, you know, many times a week PT to maintain that capacity, to maintain that kind of flexibility in her life. Mm-hmm. You can't, you don't do enough PT to get there and then say, oh, well, that's great, you're there. No, that is, you have to keep doing it in order to be able to do it. To you, you Use it or lose it is not, a, I mean, that is really super true in physical activity, in PT. You probably see people with this all the time and probably struggle with coverage questions about, you know, will they keep paying after you've reached a particular goal? Yes. And um, the interesting thing in that vein is that CMS, um, a number of years ago, changed their rules. So you did, previous to this CMS, uh, Center for Medicare and Medicaid change, you had to constantly be showing progress. And if you didn't show progress and you plateaued, you would, quote, be cut off of your therapies. 
Um, but, you know, a number of therapists in their advocacy groups, mine included, stood up and said, um, we have a case to be made for if the care goes away and how people regress. And so if you can make that case that without the um, ongoing therapy, you would you would basically backslide, mm-hmm. um, then they will continue to cover. Um, I also think the other bucket that we're looking at is utilization review. And the problem that I have pointed out in um, past years is that Sometimes the so-called experts that um, cases are handed off to in utilization review compare what's really apples to oranges. And so, again, like someone who has a single ankle sprain, for example, that's usually very, very simple without a whole lot of comorbidities or other diagnoses. Um, may, you know, heal and get get well and have an average expectancy of needing therapy for, say, six weeks. It's kind of like an industry standard. But that same um, auto crash survivor that has a brain injury and an ankle sprain, the brain injury changes everything. Right. How you process things cognitively changes everything. Everything is usually slower, mm-hmm. takes longer. It's just much more complex. And so... I think the folks um, in these utilization review teams sometimes don't consider that and are are not really comparing equally across the board when they say, well, you should have been better in six weeks, for example. Right. And this is an issue that affects everyone or could affect everyone. I feel like that's a theme that we see. I I think that um, everyone knows someone. Mm -hmm. You might not even know that you know them. Brain injury is more prevalent than we... Um, realize, and many people walk around, their their injury is um, what I'll call silent in terms of it's not readily recognizable. Uh, once they start talking, I'm thinking of my own husband, you might recognize it pretty quickly, but um, you can't you, you can't necessarily know what someone has suffered just by looking at them. There are a lot of times, you know, disabilities are evident because someone needs accommodations, someone might be missing um, a a part. Those things, you're like, oh, of course. But um, brain injury is a different story. And that makes it very difficult, uh, I think, in the no-fault area to sometimes make the case for why we need as much coverage as we do. I think also people are kind of like, well, why do we have so much coverage for auto and in in a ways that we don't necessarily have it for other things? And um, you know, the opposite question might be asked: Why don't we have the coverage for other things that we have for auto? <sighs> but the other thing is, is that when when we covered created no fault in Michigan, what we said was we're not going to re- rely on lawsuits to get people taken care of. We're all going to buy our own coverage, and then we're going to be able to take care of ourselves. And I think that that was. Um, a unique promise that Michigan was able, Michigan drivers were able to make to themselves, and we should work on preserving as much of that as we possibly can, especially because, uh, you know, we're still paying quite a bit for auto insurance. It hasn't really uh, declined in the price that I think people thought it might. Mm-hmm. Ditto, and I agree 100%, <laughs> of course. Um, and I would also add that, uh, so the 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 political impetus for these major changes in 2019 was the cost of our auto insurance. And we we went from number one in the country to there's different data sets, but either number two or three is where we're at right now. Mm-hmm. And so I would argue that these significant cu- cuts 
to um, all the things I already mentioned and how our patients and providers are now feeling these major impacts was not worth that small change. And I would argue, too, my own has not gone down. So right. <laughs> talked to, I talk to residents every day that they're like, no, ours actually either is the same or went up a little bit. Right. Well, I think one of the things we see with healthcare issues in general and healthcare policy is a lot of people don't feel motivated to get involved until it directly affects them. And like Laura said, with auto no fault, everyone knows somebody, but how do you get people involved in health policy if it doesn't affect them personally? And how do you engage new audiences? I know, Laura, you mentioned it's really important that our listeners, whether you're a healthcare constituent or just a general member of the public, to get involved in, in health policy. And how can they do that? And why do you encourage people to do that? Sure. I think it's um, just frankly intimidating for some people. I know I, I remember back to my days in Texas where I first went to my um, legislator, and it was very nerve-wracking that first time. But I, I always say to everyone, uh, we legislators are just like the rest of you. We put our pants, or today I'm wearing a dress, my, <laughs> my pants on one leg at a time or my uh, my dress on in one, one arm at a time. And we're just like everyone else, um, really, when it boils down to it. And we have a lot of accessible ways to engage with us. You don't have to drive all the way up here to Lansing. I know a lot of healthcare providers are very busy, mm-hmm. uh, don't have time to take, you know, in my case, it's an hour and 20 now with construction, hour and 35 minute drive. Um, don't have that kind of time. And so almost the majority of us legislators do have um, on both sides of the aisle in district coffee hours, almost on a monthly basis. Um, in fact, mine is coming up uh, tomorrow hmm. in Kalamazoo. But um you know, that's one way. It's usually listed on our websites. All of us are on social media. You can easily get updates on social media. We mostly, most of us also have e-news. So you can contact our stateside offices to sign up for our e-news, which is a really great way to stay involved of what's going on in the legislature. Also, for people that are really interested, especially in health policy, you can sign up for legislative alerts. So you can go to the House website or the Senate website and sign up. And you can also, there's a bill tracker. And so if there's a specific piece of legislation that you want to follow, it will automatically send you alerts when that's moving through committees. Right. We'll definitely include links to those in the show notes. But uh, Laura, from your perspective, why would you say it's so critical for hospital leaders specifically to engage with their lawmakers? What impact have you seen that have? So Representative Rogers, again, as I mentioned at the beginning, she's unique because she works in the hospital. Um, and still does, uh, despite her other full-time job. But uh, what I often say to folks who are uh, part of the hospital community, and this goes to the all of the folks I was talking about before, nurses, uh, technicians, uh, people, people serving food, people doing patient um, uh, transport, all of those folks probably know uh, at least as much and usually more and just about everybody else in the state legislature mm-hmm. about what happens inside of hospitals, how they work, what difference it will make if you try and do certain things. And when they go talk to the lawmaker at their coffee hour, they really will help them understand, you know, how things are going, what they really need. Um, you, there are There are a lot of things that people think are you know, if we just had more reporting, you know, reporting will make a lot of changes. Reporting might get you information. It doesn't mean people are going to implement change. Mm-hmm. And so helping folks understand, here's how things are working now. Here's some ideas I have. Or let me respond to things that people have introduced. Um, they, there is no one 
who doesn't have worthwhile experience to share. Right. And you can do that. We have on our website, Voter Voice, where you can reach out to lawmakers. But I really encourage the use of coffee hours. And it's kind of nice to have the, law, the legislator here because what I've said to um, folks, Representative Rogers, is go to the coffee hour more than once mm-hmm. and get to know them. And then they there might even be a chance that someone will reach out to you when there is a vote and say, I, I'm not sure I really remember what this does, but, you know, Laura's been in my coffee hour like three or four times. I think we have her in my constituent database. I'm just going to I'm just gonna try and text her and see if she knows what this is about or something. And But, but that doesn't happen when you just visit once. You really need to get to know. And like, she, like we just said, these, these opportunities in the district happen regularly. Right. So it's not like you have to do... You don't have to do it every time, mm-hmm. but people will get to know you. Right. And the other thing I would say is I think there's nothing that's more useful for people to understand what's happening than to get them to visit the inside of a hospital. It really, you really don't know. It's Of course, you might know what it looks like, but it, you don't mm-hmm. know what it feels like until you get inside. I went to a hospital ED where I really, I pretty much figured out they pretty much have a psych ward in their ED. And uh, emergency department for folks who are listening. And I was really taken aback. I've been in that emergency department many, many, many times, but never in that part of it. It was really eye-opening to see that. You probably would take your colleagues on all kinds of tours if you had the chance. (laughs) Oh, yes. And maybe watch a surgery or two. Right. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. The the miracles we can do now. Right. But that's why your background is so important to the work that you do. So are there any other, before we let you go, are there any other issues that you're working on um, that you would like to share some details with our audiences about? Um, two things. I'll just say one, uh, the org- I just wanted to mention the also another bipartisan win was the organ donor bills that Representative Braybeck led. So it's HB 4362 through 4364. Um, they passed out of our committee uh, unanimously out of health policy. And this is really, a, of course, again, near and dear to my heart. Uh, I have worked with members or patients that have had organ transplants. I've, I've worked with people who have been on a long wait list. Mm-hmm. What we found is because the um, driver's license, you know, many of us have put the little heart sticker and signed up to be an organ donor through our driver's licenses through the Secretary of State. And what I didn't really realize before this bill became before us is that we are at an all-time low for our organ donor list, transplant list in um, Mich- for donors mm-hmm. in Michigan. And part of the rationale of possibly why is because people don't have to renew. There's a lo- There's been an elongated period of your driver's license renewal for in-person. Right. You can do it through the mail for a longer period of time. And so fewer people are making those visits into the Secretary of State where the Secretary of State is a great partner and asking, always asking, do you want to sign up? Do you want to mm-hmm. sign up? And so Representative Brabeck has this really creative idea to add a checkoff box. It's totally optional, um, but to add this check checkoff box on our tax forms, our state of Michigan tax forms. And so um, I was delighted to vote for this both uh, in committee and on the House floor. I think it's over in the Senate, but um, what a great idea and way to boost, boost that um, transplant list and get our wait list down. And then the other um, passion area for me is lead poisoning. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the Flint water crisis, I was a county commissioner. And so as that was emerging, I kind of started looking into the numbers in Kalamazoo. And in my county, I was alarmed to see 
um, a high number of children testing positive for lead poisoning, similar to Flint. But the re- the reason and the root cause in my community, which I think is true of a lot of communities, is from our old housing stock, our lead-based paint. Mm. And so I just put that out there to get it on people's radars and especially for healthcare providers to remember to ask the lead screening questions Mm -hmm. because we are not screening and testing enough, in my opinion, in our state. Mm. Um, And especially with children, it can have such devastating effects. And if we catch it early, there are treatments. Um, So when when we look at those children, especially zero to six, when our brains are really developing, it's really important to, to screen for that. Right. Both very important issues and appreciate you touching on those. If our listeners do want to learn more about either one of those or anything that you've talked about today, can they head to your website? Yes. Um, and you can also email us directly, Julie Rogers at house.mi.gov, and we can connect you with all kinds of resources. Perfect. We'll be sure to include all that info in the show notes. I want to thank you both for being here. Um, it was a really insightful um, conversation, and you both brought really valuable in- insights. So appreciate you being here today. Thank you so much. Um, Laura, anything that you'd like to add before we close? No, I think it'll all be in the show notes. Thank you. <laughs> Perfect. All right. With that, I'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in and encourage everyone to take a look at our show notes to learn more about how to get involved in important policy issues and efforts that support our healthcare workforce. Thanks so much and get up and move. Thanks for listening to the My Care Champion Cast. To learn more or get involved, visit MHA.org. 